The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. And I, I'm pleased to be able to come back this evening to this particular portion of Scripture. It's uh, here from here to the end of the chapter, and really most of this is really some of my favorite parts of, of Scripture. I really find it to be a very interesting part of God's Word, and we're spending uh, quite a bit of time going through this because not only is it interesting, or at least it is to me, it's also an extremely important part of Scripture, a very important doctrine that we're discussing here. This may have been... Paul's first letter. It could have been the first thing that Paul wrote in the New Testament. There are some who do believe that it was. And if it was, then we see Paul just really hits the ground running and showing us what kind of theologian that he would be. That he, uh, if, you're, if you're going to stick with the Apostle Paul, hold your breath for a long time because he's going to take you deep down into the Word of God. Well, let's take a look at this text, and we're, we're talking about the section, verses 15 through 22 once again, and the subject is the purpose of the law. So verse number 15 says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be a man's covenant, and yet, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to who the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now this evening we're going to start at verse number 19 which says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now the first part of that verse is the same as the title of my message. Paul says, wherefore then serveth the law? Or if we want to put it in the words that I have, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give us the law? And that question is, is asked, Paul asks it here, in anticipation of the arguments that would be made by his opponents, that if God has justified man by faith, and that is the way that we're all saved, then what was the purpose of God giving? us the law. Do we really need the law? Do we really need to pay attention to the law? Well, we continue the lesson tonight, and I'm going to uh, skip over the first two parts of the outline, and we're going to begin with number three on your outline, and so that is the law accentuates the promise. 
Now, the primary objection that the Judaizers had against Paul concerning his doctrine of justification by faith alone is that if God intended to justify us without the works of the law, then there is no purpose for the law. And the Judaizers were of the opinion that what Paul wanted to do was just get rid of the law, that the law was not important, we don't need it, and to them, that was just a horrible conclusion for anyone to come to. And so we took a trip back into the Old Testament last week and we went back to Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus where God gave Moses the law and we found out at reading there that it was a tremendously momentous occasion when God appeared on Mount Sinai and gave that law to Moses. God made a special appearance, one like he'd never made before. And while he was there on Mount Sinai, he told Moses, you tell the people, don't touch the mountain, don't come near it, stay away from it while his holiness is on that mountain. And so Moses went up and he met face to face with God. And when he returned, his face was shining so brightly with the glory of God that he had to veil his face. He had to cover it because it blinded them. And on that mountain, Moses received God's holy law. He was given the plans for the tabernacle worship. He was given instructions that would govern the worship of Israel for the next 1,500 years. Now, he told them, according to the law, or having been given the law, he said, you must obey God. You must keep God's statutes. You're to keep it all throughout your generation. And if you do, then God's blessings will be upon you. But if you don't, then you'll receive all the curses, all of the bad things that are inherent in the law. You get all of those curses if you don't obey God. And so for the next 1,500 years, Israel got a good look at that. What God meant when he said, if you obey me, I will bless you, and if you don't, you will be cursed. Because if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that only for a relatively short period of time did Israel obey God. Most of the time they were in disobedience. And so we find that Israel finally lost 10 of their tribes. 10 northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They were dispersed so that they're not recognizable at the end of the Old Testament. And then the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, they were also taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And Israel lost their temple. Israel lost their land. And why did it happen? Because of disobedience. It was disobedience to God's law. And so the only way to get those things back was to come back under the laws of God and begin to obey God again and pray that God would give everything back to them. Now we get into the New Testament and we come to the time of the scribes and the Pharisees and these Judaizers that are here speaking with the Apostle Paul or arguing with him. And they recognized the problem. They, they did need to get back to the laws of God. And so they were part of this mixed up, convoluted scheme to get back into uh, the good graces of God, you might say, to make all things right with him. And so they figured that if they kept the Ten Commandments, that's good. If they kept 20 commandments, that would be better. If there were 40 commandments they could keep, that would be still better. If there are 40, then 80 must be better than that. And so they just kept adding and adding and adding to the law and kept going and going and going. And there wasn't any secret to any of that. There wasn't a way that that you could just approach that and have a real easy way to do it. You couldn't. It was a very difficult thing, a hard thing for them to do, to keep all these laws that were put in place. But they thought that was going to make them pleasing with God. 
Jesus said that the scribes and the Pharisees heaped unbearable burdens on the people. And so he said, come to me. If you'll just trust me, just believe me, I can remove all of those burdens from you. Well, after all those years of laboring under the law, the Jews could not see it as being right that the Gentiles should be able to escape the law and to be justified by another means or an easier means as they saw it, an easier means by faith and rather than by works. So justification by faith alone was just too simple for them. They weren't accepting of it. Why should God accept Gentiles on the basis of faith when for so many years the Jews were burdened down with the law? I won't go into it now, but Jesus even gave a parable specific to that very problem. As why did the Gentiles get to labor a short time and the Jews labor a long time and we both get the same thing? There's actually a parable that Jesus talked about that very thing. So justification, that's by faith, that's just too simple for them. And they never did understand that the outward performance of the law was not what God was looking for. That was never God's intent. God never intended to justify anybody by the rituals of religion, by the works that they would do. From the very beginning, God was interested in the heart. He wants a clean heart. He wants purified souls. So he never said that anybody could could be right with him in any other way than by faith. And he proved that very early on. And that's why we have the example of Abraham in the scriptures, why Paul uses him. Because God gave a promise to Abraham that was not contingent upon any performance by Abraham. Abraham didn't have to do anything for this. God said, I'm going to do it. I'll keep my promise. I'll make sure that this comes to pass. So that promise is based upon God's truthfulness and not on man's activity. It's based on what God would do and not what man would do. So that's the point of Paul's argument in bringing in the faith of Abraham. But that still leaves that that big question, why did God give the law? Why all of this hullabaloo about the law if God never intended to save anybody by it? Well, that's the question that gets answered beginning in verse number 19. Paul's not against the law. He loved the law. He taught the law. The law is very important, but only for the purpose that God intended. And if the law gets out of the proper place where God intended it to be, it's, it's not a blessing to man. The law actually becomes a curse to him. So Paul is really anxious to get these Galatian people back on the right track. I mean, they're going down the path of the law, and they don't want to be there because the end of that path is nothing but destruction. So now we get then to the purpose of the law. Paul has fairly proved that Abraham was justified by faith, and so now he's going to show why God gave the law. Now, if you'll take a moment there to look at verse number 21, you'll see that Paul has no animosity for the law. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? And the answer is no. The law is not against the promise. It serves to accentuate the need for the promise of God. Well, how does it do that? Well, that's found in the purpose. Why did God give the law? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons why God gave the law. You won't get all three of them tonight. You're just going to get two of them this evening. We'll get two reasons why God gave the law. And the first was that the law establishes transgression. Verse 19 says, it was added because of transgression. 
Now, we have to be very careful with that statement that we don't get confused by it. In the book of Romans, Paul was treating the same subject, and he says in Romans chapter 4, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, listen, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Now you you can get confused by that, and you may think that what Paul is saying there is that there was no sin until God gave the law. And so is he saying nobody committed sin until God codified the law in the Ten Commandments? Well, he anticipated that question already in Romans chapter 2, and he replied to it in this way. For as many as have sinned without the law, right there tells us there is sin without the law. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another." And what those verses are telling us is that we do not have to have the Ten Commandments to establish that we're sinners. We sin without the law when we go against the law that God has already written on our hearts. Now, this is really a resounding vote against the idea that man evolved from protoplasm. Because if that's true, then why is it universally true over the entire world that people know the difference between right and wrong. Why is there universal knowledge? No matter where you go, people know it's wrong to steal. No matter if they've heard of God or not, they know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to kill. They even know things like this. It's wrong to run off with your neighbor's wife. We know those things because God created us and he wrote that law on our heart. And so we know those things are wrong and we know that they are transgressions. We don't need anyone to prove to us that we do things that are wrong. We already know that. But what we don't know without the Ten Commandments is that we've broken God's law. Now, we may know that we've hurt somebody else, hurt another person. We we may know that we've done something to harm society. We know we've done something even to hurt ourselves. But what we don't know without the law is the person that we've actually offended. We don't know without God giving us the law and showing us exactly what he wants us to do that when we transgress that we have broken the laws of the almighty God of the universe. And we don't even know it was God who gave us those laws. We don't know who that God is. That was part of the problem with the Gentiles. Now, they were sinners, no doubt about that. They broke the laws that God wrote in their heart, but they didn't know anything about Jehovah God, nothing at all about him. So God gave his law to show us that when we lie and steal, when we cheat and kill, when you worship an idol, when you take God's name in vain, when you disobey your parents, when you break the Sabbath, you have offended the Almighty God. So the law doesn't make people sinners. The law does not make you a transgressor. It shows you who you have transgressed. Sin is rebellion against God, and that's the thing that lands your sorry soul in hell. Now, that's one of the main points that you, you have to get across in a, in a gospel presentation. There is no gospel without the realization that God's law has been broken. 
This is why we deplore churches that will not preach about sin and hell. A preacher that leaves out hell and a preacher that doesn't talk about the transgression of God's law and he says nothing about the condemnation that comes because of that has no gospel in his message. People need to know what they're saved from. They need to know that there are consequences for their rebellion against God. So sin against God, rebellion against God, defilement against the holiness of God, all those are critical factors that people need to know before they can be saved. And so the law was given that we might understand that breaking this list of commandments that God gave is rebellion against him. Why do you need to know that? Well, you need to know it because you need to see how serious it is. You need to know that because you have to understand that with the seriousness of it, that perhaps you would be less prone to break God's laws. Maybe you need to know that because you misunderstand that God is not making suggestions when he tells you what to do. He is giving you commands. He's not saying, I'd really like for you to behave this way. He's telling you, you had better behave this way. These are not suggestions that God gives. Do you understand how little, though, that everyone else, people that aren't Christians, how little they realize that? Because people will joke about sin. They say, oh, you're a naughty boy. You've done a bad thing. Shame, shame on you. But what if I put it in a little bit different light? And the preacher says, you have transgressed the holiness of God. You have offended the righteous sovereign of this universe. You have to suffer eternity in hell because of your crimes, your egregious violations against God. And I'm not talking about mass murder. And I'm not talking about child pornography. And I'm not speaking about pedophilia. Those things are horrible. We're talking about... Things like your white lies that you tell and your little fudging a little bit on the income tax and even your lack of attention while you sit in church. Those are also crimes against God. When you know that, when you get that thought in your head, puts a little bit different twist on it, doesn't, than shame, shame on you. Oh, it makes you accountable for something, makes you accountable to God. So the law was added because of transgression. It was given to show us what happens when you cross the righteous king of the universe. Now, to get a little bit better handle on that, what Paul means when he says the law is added because of transgression, we need to look at the arguments that he makes. So I want you to go to the book of Romans, if you would. And Romans is a fuller explanation of the themes that Paul talks about in Galatians. And there he crystallizes the purpose of the law into some very succinct arguments. Now, we'll take a look at chapter 3 first. And we're, and we're all familiar with that because uh, the third chapter, if you've ever used the Romans road to give somebody a gospel presentation, you're familiar with this. You go to Romans 3.10 and you read, there is none righteous, no, not one. You go on reading in verse 11, it says that there's no one understands and no one seeks after God. Verse 12 says there is none that does good. And all of those verses point to the fact that everybody has transgressed God's law. There's nobody that can claim to be innocent of it. And notice how Paul concludes that particular section. He says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." 
Now, contrary to the Jews' position that you could be justified by the law or doing good works, Paul says the only thing the law declares is that there's no way that you can be justified that way. The law tells you you can't do it. The law is a scarlet letter that gets pinned on you that says you are guilty. And he says in verse 20, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, you turn over to the fifth chapter in verse number 20. In the 20th verse, he says, Moreover, the law entered, why? That the offense might abound. Now, that means that the law is like a highlighter. The law draws attention to just how egregious that our actions are. So it becomes all the more apparent what terrible sinners that we are and that we have committed those sins against a holy and righteous God. So he says, the offense might abound. That's why the law came. Then chapter 7, if you look there, Romans 7, verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. So he keeps reinforcing this idea that the law showed him what sin really is. He didn't understand the standard that, that God was asking for until he got a grip on the requirements of the law. Then if you look at the 13th verse of chapter 7, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now that might be a little bit hard for you to understand, but what he's explaining is that there's nothing wrong with the law. He wouldn't try to throw the law out. The law's not bad. The problem is sin. The law didn't kill Paul. The Paul made him... The, the law made him realize who would kill him or what was killing him, and that was his sin. By, by the law came the knowledge of sin, and that's why the law was given to us, to show us that. Now, there's an interesting point when we look a little bit closer at this. He says, sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, do you know what happens when we learn that God has a specific command against something, it's like putting a sign on a park bench that says, wet paint, do not touch. What happens? You touch it. I mean, it's like that prohibition not to touch that bench becomes a magnet that draws people to it. I mean, you could pass that bench a hundred times a day and never have any thought at all that you just want to reach out and swipe your hand along that, along that bench. But as soon as somebody puts a sign on it that says wet paint, that's what you do. You go over there, you have to do it. You have to touch it. And that's what the law does. It brings out this desire that we have. The law works on us. And when it says don't, that's the thing that we want to do. And that's the same thought that Paul has in verse 13. God's law says no, but that passion is burning in us. And the law brings out the passion that's there that what we must do is eat the forbidden fruit. Just like Adam and Eve, we have to eat the forbidden fruit. And that's what the law does to you. It doesn't make you sin. It just reveals the desire that you have in your heart that you have to do it. So you go on reading in chapter 7, and you see the struggle that takes place on the inside. Paul says in verse 19, For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. So you see what the law does? It makes you see how bad that you really are. It doesn't leave you wondering if you're all right. The law never leaves you in a position that you can say, well, you know something, I might possibly make it. 
I might just make it by keeping all these laws. No, you, you can't. The more, listen, the more law that you learn, the more you realize just how impossible it is for you to be saved by it. Now we see a, another example of this. Uh, the second purpose of the law, well, that brings it out a little bit more clearly, that the law establishes inability. That's another purpose of the law. It establishes our inability. Now, you know what happened when the scribes and Pharisees just kept adding all of these laws for righteousness? They just kept digging the hole deeper and deeper. Every law that they brought in made the, the realization greater of just how impossible it is to do all things right. That's the burden that Jesus says the religious leaders put upon the people. Uh, they, they were under a burden of trying to keep all of these nitpicky little things, and the more that they kept having to add on to it, the more impossible it became. You know, I remember when we were discussing in form class just a few weeks ago, we were talking about whether it's right for some Christians to work on Sundays. And we kind of got into that discussion, and we, as we discussed that, we started to get a little bit bogged down in things and trying to explain whether it's right or whether it's wrong for a Christian to work on Sunday. And I said, well, I won't mow my lawn on Sunday. And then somebody asked me, well, will you eat out on Sunday? You go out and eat, and you cause somebody else to have to work, and they're working to feed you. So now I've got another problem to deal with. Am I breaking God's law by causing somebody else to work on Sunday? You know, I was growing up, uh, oh, uh, for a lot of years, my dad would not eat at a restaurant on Sunday. And, uh, but, you know, we had, we had to drive over 100 miles back and forth to church. Every, three times a week we did that. And this was back in the days when you had 390 engines and four-barrel carburetors. And you had to stop for gas every now and then. So what do you do when you've got to stop for gas on Sunday? Somebody's got to open up the service station. Somebody's got to work to pump your gas. And back in those days, they actually did that. They came out and pumped your gas for you. Today, they'd have a heart attack if that ever happened or whoever's driving a car would. But, but anyway, they, that somebody had to work. Somebody had to open the gas station. You see the kind of problems that you run into when you're trying to be so, so nitpicky of things about what you do and what you don't do. You're going to run into all kinds of problems. You find yourself in adverse situations. And so you have to keep making laws to cover every little scenario that you can think of. And as you do that, the hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper. Same thing happens in churches that are ruled by legalism. When you try to prove holiness by doing this or doing that, then... You don't have any choice but to keep adding more and more things, more and more scenarios, more and more ways to, to prove your holiness. So when we got done with that discussion, we came to the conclusion that we had an excellent example of what both Paul and Jesus were talking about with all of these laws of scribes and Pharisees and the problem of trying to be righteous by keeping the law. So every time you do that, you find out how impossible it is to do it, that you don't have the ability. The law will kill you if you try to be justified by it. And that's exactly the conclusion that Paul is trying to bring these people to. So the law is not given to save you. It's given to drive your self-righteousness into the dust. What the law does is to grind you down. It grinds your righteousness to powder. It bears you six feet under, and then it comes and pours concrete on top of the hole. You're not getting out. You can't get out from under the burden of the law by yourself. And Paul has some 
good explanations or examples or illustrations of that when we look at the next section of verses. So the law serves this purpose of driving you to the grace of Jesus Christ, to the grace of God. Because you get under the law and you try to keep all these things and you finally come to the realization, I can't do it. God, if I'm going to be saved this way, then I won't be saved because I can't do it. I need you. And it drives you to the grace of God. Now, Martin Luther had an interesting way of putting this. He said, the law is a mirror to show a person what he is like, a sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish? This, that we may find the way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. God is the God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted. It is his nature to exalt the humble, to comfort the sorrowing, to heal, to heal the brokenhearted, to justify the sinners, and to save the condemned. The fatuous idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore first take the sledgehammer of the law in his fist and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came into the world not to break the bruised reed nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. Man's folly, however, is so prodigious that instead of embracing the message of grace with its guarantee of forgiveness of sin for Christ's sake, man finds himself more laws to satisfy his conscience. If I live, says he, I will mend my life. I will do this. I will do that. Man, if you don't do the very opposite, if you don't send Moses with the law back to Mount Sinai and take the hand of Christ, pierce for your sins, you will never be saved. When the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little farther. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus, who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that a great way of putting it? Martin Luther just had this way with words. If you ever get a chance to read things that Martin Luther has written, uh, some of it's very comical. I mean, to me, he's, he's very comical about things because you know, I mean, he doesn't mind calling you a name. I mean, he's not kind about some things. When he's arguing with people, he's just like, take this, spit on you. I mean, it's, he's just got this way. I kind of like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. But anyway, he, he, didn't, he didn't mess around with people. But he's a great way of putting this. So is the law good for us? Well, without doubt it is. So we keep preaching the law. We're not going to stop preaching the law. We keep preaching this. We keep demanding that sinners obey the law because by the law is the knowledge of sin. We are accountable to the great God of this universe. We have violated his law. You know, it, it, it's wonderful to have a zeal for lost sinners. All of us ought to be evangelistic. We really ought to zeal to see people saved. But don't you think that the soul winner or the evangelist hurts the cause of Christ if he keeps asking people, do you want to be saved? Would you like to know that you're saved? And that person says, saved from what? Oh, you know, just saved. Wouldn't you just like to be saved? What kind of gospel doesn't tell you what you need to be saved from? You need the law to let you know what to be saved from. I like the way that R.C. Sproul put that. He says, what are we saved from? We're saved from God. Sounds kind of strange to say it that way, doesn't it? We're saved from God? 
But that's exactly right. We're saved from the wrath of God. If, if you don't have things right with him, the wrath of God is on you. You've transgressed God's holy laws, and he's none too happy about it. So his wrath is on you. You have to be saved from his wrath. Well, there's only one way that you can be. You have to let the law drive you to the grace of God. You can't do it by yourself. You can't say, I'll mend my ways, I'll do better. No, you have to do what Luther says, send Moses and the law back to Mount Sinai because it's never going to help you. So why did God give the law? Not to save you, but to reveal that you are a sinner with no hope. So the law is given to drive you to the grace of God. Well, I have one more reason that I want to give you, but we're going to save that for next time. And in the next lesson, well, we'll start off by talking about the purpose of the law again. And we're going to see in, in that message how that the law is inferior to the promise. That you would never want to actually, you just never want to choose law over grace because the law can never do for you what grace can and then while we look at that statement, we're also going to explore the difficult parts that we find in verses 19 and 20 about the mediators. What's, he, what's Paul talking about when he speaks of the mediators in verse, verses uh, 19 and 20? So we're going to talk about that next time as well. But here's the important thing, of course, again, to draw out of what we've studied tonight, is that the law was given to show us we have, we have sinned against God. That's the primary thing that we have to learn here. We have sinned against God, and there's no way that we can help ourselves to appease God for what we've done. There's only one way that we can. That's Jesus Christ. We have to come to him. He's the only one that can satisfy God for our sins. So don't try to be saved by the law. You've got the wrong purpose if you want to do that. Not sacraments, not things that you do, not religious rituals. Jesus Christ did it all because you can't do anything to help yourself. That's what this teaches. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had uh, in your word tonight. Uh, what a great passage of scripture that we have. Uh, some of these things are hard to really uh, make thrilling for people to, to see. And, and this is not the kind of stuff that you turn backflips in the pews over. We know that. But this is critical information. Uh, the whole world is faced with one of two ways of being saved, and the whole world deposits themselves right into one of those two ways, either by grace through faith in Jesus Christ or by the things that they do. And sadly to say, the far vast majority of the world, even those who call themselves Christians, are stuck in a system of trying to be saved by what they do. This is why we need to know this. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and giving us the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org